Dead Souls, Part 1, Chapter 5, Section 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls, by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by D. J. Hogarth Part 1, Chapter 5 Section 1 Read by Ewan Bayliss Certainly Chichikov was a thorough coward, for, although the britchka pursued its headlong course, until Nozdrev's establishment had disappeared behind hillocks and hedgerows, our hero continued to glance nervously behind him, as though every moment expecting to see a stern chase begin. His breath came with difficulty, and when he tried his heart with his hands, he could feel it fluttering, like a quail caught in a net. What a sweat the fellow has thrown me into, he thought to himself, while many a dire and forceful aspiration passed through his mind. Indeed, the expressions to which he gave vent were most inelegant in their nature. But what was to be done next? He was a Russian, and thoroughly aroused. The affair had been no joke. But for the superintendent, he reflected, I might never again have looked upon God's daylight. I might have vanished like a bubble on a pool, and left neither trace nor posterity, nor property, nor an honourable name for my future offspring to inherit. It seemed that our hero was particularly anxious with regard to his possible issue. What a scurvy barin, mused Selifan as he drove along. Never have I seen such a barin. I should like to spit in his face. Tis better to allow a man nothing to eat than to refuse to feed a horse properly. A horse needs his oats. They are his proper fare. Even if you make a man procure a meal at his own expense, don't deny a horse his oats, for he ought always to have them. An equally poor opinion of Nozdrev seemed to be cherished also by the steeds, for not only were the bay and the assessor clearly out of spirits, but even the skewbald was wearing a dejected air. True, at home the skewbald got none but the poorer sorts of oats to eat, and Selifan never filled his trough, without having first called him a villain. But at least they were oats, and not hay. They were stuff which could be chewed with a certain amount of relish. Also, there was the fact that at intervals he could intrude his long nose into his companion's troughs, especially when Selifan happened to be absent from the stable, and ascertain what their provender was like. But at Nozdrev's there had been nothing but hay. That was not right. All three horses felt greatly discontented. But presently the malcontents had their reflections cut short in a very rude and unexpected manner. That is to say, they were brought back to practicalities by coming into violent collision with a six-horsed vehicle while upon their heads descended both a babel of cries from the ladies inside and a storm of curses and abuse from the coachman 
"'Ah, you damned fool!' he vociferated. "'I shouted to you loud enough. "'Draw out, you old raven, and keep to the right. "'Are you drunk?' Selifan himself felt conscious that he had been careless, but since a Russian does not care to admit a fault in the presence of strangers, he retorted with dignity, "'Why have you run into us? Did you leave your eyes behind you at the last tavern that you stopped at?' With that, he started to back the britchka, in the hope that it might get clear of the other's harness, but this would not do, for the pair were too hopelessly intertwined. Meanwhile, the skewbold snuffed curiously at his new acquaintances as they stood planted on either side of him, while the ladies in the vehicle regarded the scene with an expression of terror. One of them was an old woman, and the other a damsel of about sixteen. A mass of golden hair fell daintily from a small head, and the oval of her comely face was as shapely as an egg and white with the transparent whiteness seen when the hands of a housewife hold a new-laid egg to the light to let the sun's rays filter through its shell. The same tint marked the maiden's ears, where they glowed in the sunshine, and, in short, what with the tears in her wide-open arresting eyes, she presented so attractive a picture that our hero bestowed upon it more than a passing glance before he turned his attention to the hubbub which was being raised among the horses and the coachmen. "'Back out, you rook of Nizhny Novgorod!' the stranger's coachman shouted. Selifan tightened his reins, and the other driver did the same. The horses stepped back a little, and then came together again, this time getting a leg or two over the traces. In fact, so pleased did the skewbold seem with his new friends that he refused to stir from the melee into which an unforeseen chance had plunged him. Laying his muzzle lovingly upon the neck of one of his recently acquired acquaintances, he seemed to be whispering something in that acquaintance's ear, and whispering pretty nonsense too, to judge from the way in which that confidant kept shaking his ears. At length, peasants from a village, which happened to be near the scene of the accident, tackled the mess, and since a spectacle of that kind is to the Russian muzhik what a newspaper or a club meeting is to the German, the vehicle soon became the centre of a crowd, and the village denuded even of its old women and children. The traces were disentangled, and a few slaps on the nose forced the skewbald to draw back a little after which the teams were straightened out and separated. Nevertheless, either sheer obstinacy or vexation at being parted from their new friends caused the team absolutely to refuse to move a leg. Their driver laid the whip about them, but still they stood as though rooted to the spot. At length the participatory efforts of the peasants rose to an unprecedented degree of enthusiasm, and they shouted in an intermittent chorus the advice, Do you, Andrusha, take the head of the trace-horse on the right, while Uncle Mitai mounts the shaft-horse? Get up, Uncle Mitai! Upon that the lean, long, and red-bearded Uncle Mitai mounted the shaft-horse, 
in which position he looked like a village steeple, or the winder which is used to raise water from wells. The coachman whipped up his steeds afresh, but nothing came of it, and Uncle Mitai had proved useless. "'Hold on, hold on!' shouted the peasants again. "'Do you, Uncle Mitai, mount the trace-horse, while Uncle Minai mounts the shaft-horse?' Whereupon Uncle Minai, a peasant with a pair of broad shoulders, a beard as black as charcoal, and a belly like the huge samovar in which Spiten is brewed for all attending a local market, hastened to seat himself upon the shaft-horse, which almost sank to the ground beneath his weight. "'Now they will go all right!' the muzhiks exclaimed. "'Lay it on hot! Lay it on hot! Give that sorrel horse the whip, and make him squirm like a coromora!' Footnote. A kind of large gnat. End of footnote. Nevertheless, the affair in no way progressed. Wherefore, seeing that flogging was of no use, uncles Mitai and Minai both mounted the sorrel, while Andrusha seated himself upon the trace-horse. Then the coachman himself lost patience, and sent the two uncles about their business, and not before it was time, seeing that the horses were steaming in a way that made it clear that, unless they were first winded, they would never reach the next post-house. So they were given a moment's rest. That done, they moved off of their own accord. Throughout, Chichikov had been gazing at the young unknown with great attention, and had even made one or two attempts to enter into conversation with her, but without success. Indeed, when the ladies departed, it was as in a dream that he saw the girl's comely presence, the delicate features of her face, and the slender outline of her form vanish from his sight. It was as in a dream that once more he saw only the road, the britchka, the three horses, Selifan, and the bare empty fields. Everywhere in life, yes, even in the plainest, the dingiest ranks of society, as much as in those which are uniformly bright and presentable, a man may happen upon some phenomenon which is so entirely different from those which have hitherto fallen to his lot. Everywhere, through the web of sorrow of which our lives are woven, there may suddenly break a clear, radiant thread of joy, even as suddenly along the street of some poor, poverty-stricken village which ordinarily sees naught but a farm wagon there may come bowling a gorgeous coach with plated harness picturesque horses and a glitter of glass so that the peasants stand gaping and do not resume their caps until long after the strange equipage has become lost to sight thus the golden-haired maiden makes a sudden unexpected appearance in our story and as suddenly, as unexpectedly, disappears. Indeed, had it not been that the person concerned was Chichikov, and not some youth of twenty summers, a hussar, or a student, or, in general, a man standing on the threshold of life, what thoughts would not have sprung to birth, and stirred and spoken within him? For what a length of time would he not have stood entranced 
as he stared into the distance, and forgot alike his journey, the business still to be done, the possibility of incurring loss through lingering, himself, his vocation, the world, and everything else that the world contains. But, in the present case, the hero was a man of middle age, and of cautious and frigid temperament. True, he pondered over the incident, but in the more deliberate fashion than a younger man would have done. That is to say, his reflections were not so irresponsible and unsteady. She was a comely damsel, he said to himself as he opened his snuff-box and took a pinch. But the important point is, is she also a nice damsel? One thing she has in her favour, and that is that she appears only just to have left school, and not to have had time to become womanly in the worser sense. At present, therefore, she is like a child. Everything in her is simple, and she says just what she thinks, and laughs merely when she feels inclined. Such a damsel might be made into anything, or she might be turned into worthless rubbish. The latter, I surmise, for trudging after her where her own father wouldn't know her. And to that there will be added pride and affectation, and she will begin to observe established rules, and to rack her brains as to how and how much she ought to talk, and to whom, and where, and so forth. Every moment will see her growing timorous and confused, lest she be saying too much. Finally, she will develop into a confirmed prevaricator, and end by marrying the devil knows whom. Chichikov paused a while. Then he went on. Yet I should like to know who she is, and who her father is, and whether he is a rich landowner of good standing, or merely a respectable man who has acquired a fortune in the service of the government. Should he allow her, on marriage, a dowry of, say, two hundred thousand roubles, she will be a very nice catch indeed. She might even, so to speak, make a man of good breeding happy. Indeed, so attractively did the idea of the two hundred thousand roubles begin to dance before his imagination, that he felt a twinge of self-reproach, because, during the hubbub, he had not inquired of the postillion or the coachman who the travellers might be. But soon the sight of Sobakovitch's country house dissipated his thoughts, and forced him to return to his stock subject of reflection. Sobakovitch's country house and estate were of very fair size, and on each side of the mansion were expanses of birch and pine forest in two shades of green. The wooden edifice itself had dark grey walls and a red gabled roof, for it was a mansion of the kind which Russia builds for her military settlers and for German colonists. A noticeable circumstance was the fact that the taste of the architect had differed from that of the proprietor, the former having manifestly been a pedant and desirous of symmetry, and the latter having wished only for comfort. Consequently, he, the proprietor, 
had dispensed with all windows on one side of the mansion, and had caused to be inserted in their place only a small aperture, which doubtless was intended to light an otherwise dark lumber-room. Likewise, the architect's best efforts had failed to cause the pediment to stand in the centre of the building, since the proprietor had had one of its four original columns removed. Evidently, durability had been considered throughout, for the courtyard was enclosed by a strong and very high wooden fence, and both the stables, the coach-house, and the culinary premises were partially constructed of beams warranted to last for centuries. Nay, even the wooden huts of the peasantry were wonderful in the solidity of their construction, and not a clay wall or a carved pattern or other device was to be seen. Everything fitted exactly into its right place, and even the draw-well of the mansion was fashioned of the oak wood usually thought suitable only for mills or ships. In short, wherever Chichikov's eye turned, he saw nothing that was not free from shoddy make, and well and skilfully arranged. As he approached the entrance steps, he caught sight of two faces peering from a window. One of them was that of a woman in a mob-cap, with features as long and as narrow as a cucumber and the other that of a man with features as broad and as short as the Moldavian pumpkins, known as Gorlianki, whereof Balalaiki, the species of light two-stringed instrument which constitutes the pride and the joy of the gay young fellow of twenty, as he sits winking and smiling at the white-necked, white-bosomed maidens who have gathered to listen to his low-pitched tinkling, are fashioned. This scrutiny made, both faces withdrew, and there came out onto the entrance steps a lackey clad in a grey jacket and a stiff blue collar. This functionary conducted Chichikov into the hall, where he was met by the master of the house himself, who requested his guest to enter, and then led him into the inner part of the mansion. A covert glance at Sabakovich showed our hero that his host exactly resembled a moderate-sized bear. To complete the resemblance, Sobakovich's long frock-coat and baggy trousers were of the precise colour of a bear's hide, while, when shuffling across the floor, he made a criss-cross motion of his legs, and had, in addition, a constant habit of treading upon his companion's toes. As for his face, it was of the warm, ardent tint of a piatok. Footnote. A copper coin worth five kopecks. End of footnote. Persons of this kind, persons to whose designing nature has devoted not much thought, and in the fashioning of whose frames she has used no instrument so delicate as a file or a gimlet or so forth, are not uncommon. Such persons she merely rough hues, one cut with a hatchet, and there results a nose, another such cut with a hatchet, and there materialises a pair of lips, two thrusts with a drill, and there issues a pair of eyes. Lastly, scorning to plane down the roughness, she sends out that person into the world, saying, There is another live creature. 
Sobakovich was just such a ragged, curiously put-together figure, though the above model would seem to have been followed more in his upper portion than in his lower. One result was that he seldom turned his head to look at the person with whom he was speaking, but rather directed his eyes towards, say, the stove-corner or the doorway. As host and guest crossed the living room, Chichikov directed a second glance at his companion. He is a bear, and nothing but a bear, he thought to himself. And indeed, the strange comparison was inevitable. Incidentally, Sabakovich's Christian name and patronymic were Michael Semenovich. Of his habit of treading upon other people's toes, Chichikov had become fully aware. Wherefore, he stepped cautiously, and throughout, allowed his host to take the lead. As a matter of fact, Sabakovich himself seemed conscious of his failing. For at intervals he would inquire, I hope I have not hurt you. And Chichikov, with a word of thanks, would reply that as yet he had sustained no injury. At length they reached the drawing-room, where Sobakovich pointed to an armchair and invited his guest to be seated. Chichikov gazed with interest at the walls and the pictures. In every such picture there were portrayed either young men or Greek generals of the type of Mavrogordato, clad in a red uniform and breeches, Canaris and others, and all these heroes were depicted with the solidity of thigh and the wealth of moustache, which made the beholder simply shudder with awe. Among them there were placed also, according to some unknown system, and, for some unknown reason, firstly, Bagration. Footnote. A Russian general who fought against Napoleon, and was mortally wounded at Borodino. End of footnote. Tall and thin, and with a cluster of small flags and cannon beneath him, and the whole set in the narrowest of frames. And secondly, the Greek heroine, Bobolina, whose legs looked larger than do the whole bodies of the drawing-room dandies of the present day. Apparently, the master of the house was himself a man of health and strength, and therefore liked to have his apartments adorned with none but folk of equal vigour and robustness. Lastly, in the window, and suspected cheek by jowl with Bobolina, there hung a cage, whence, at intervals, there peered forth a white spotted blackbird. Like everything else in the apartment, it bore a strong resemblance to Sobakovich. When host and guest had been conversing for two minutes or so, the door opened, and there entered the hostess, a tall lady in a cap adorned with ribbons of domestic colouring and manufacture. She entered deliberately, and held her head as erect as a palm. End of part one, chapter five, section one.